This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of In the Sunshine, a song by Junkyard Todd, a singer-songwriter from Cleveland. Todd is our featured Ohio musical artist this week, so stick around to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you more about him and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. Stevie Oder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Acker Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. In 1946, a new musical by Irving Berlin debuted on Broadway. It was called Annie Get Your Gun, and it was the 19th century story of Ohio's Annie Oakley, a girl from Dark County who grew into one of the country's best sharpshooters, co-starred in Buffalo Bill's popular Wild West show, and was so admired by Chief Sitting Bull that he adopted her as his daughter. I guess in 1946, American sensibilities weren't strong enough to accept the real story of Annie Oakley. For instance, the musical ended with her taking Sitting Bull's advice to throw a contest against the man she loved, because otherwise he wouldn't be able to love her in return, So she let the guy beat her and lived the rest of her life happily in his shadow. The truth is, the dashing, real-life Frank Butler was made of stronger stuff than that. Annie not only beat him in that now legendary contest, he asked her to marry him because of it, not in spite of it. And with Frank standing by her side, she became the most famous woman in America, maybe the world, at the height of her career. So let's sort through the myth and mystery of Annie Oakley and see if we can't get a more accurate portrait of one of Ohio's most fascinating characters. Her first name wasn't Annie. Her last name wasn't Oakley. She was actually christened Phoebe Ann Mosey on August the 13th, 1860, the sixth of nine children born to Susan and Jacob Mosey. The Quaker family lived in a log cabin that had been hewn from the forest of Patterson Township in Ohio's Dark County. That's along the Indiana border, halfway down the state. 
Annie's parents had originally come from Hollidaysburg, Pennsylvania, where they'd operated a tavern. When it burned down, they decided to move west and become farmers. When they settled in Dark County, it had grown considerably since the Treaty of Greenville had removed the native population and encouraged more white settlers to move in. There were 20,000 souls there when the Moseys arrived. They were mostly farmers, and in an era when farmers had very hard lives. Oh, how the Moseys would struggle. Annie's older sisters insisted on calling her Annie instead of Phoebe, but she had little in common with them. While they played with rag dolls, the little tomboy followed her father as he repaired fences, cleared brush, set traps for small game, and turned a cow's hide into leather shoes. When Annie was six years old, her father Jacob died. He was already an old man, had fought in the War of 1812, was nearly three times the age of his wife, and was 61 when Annie was born. On a snowy day in 1865, Jacob left home to travel to a mill 14 miles away, and he got caught in an unexpected blizzard. He suffered hypothermia and died a few weeks later of pneumonia. Susan Mosey married a second time, had another child, but became widowed again. Though very young, Annie did what she could to help the family, including learning how to shoot so she could hunt game for her mother and siblings. Annie always said she was eight years old when she took her very first shot. She saw a squirrel run through the grass in front of the house, through the orchard, and stop on a fence to get a hickory nut. She said she grabbed a rifle from the house and shot him through the head. But it wasn't going to be enough to keep the family together. Susan struggled to feed her children. She allowed another family to adopt her youngest child. And in 1870, when Annie was nine, she and her sister Sarah were given to the Dark County Infirmary, also known as the County Poor Farm. It was there one day that a farmer came asking for a sturdy girl to help his wife care for their infant son. It wasn't an unusual request made of the poor farm, and so Annie went with him for the promise of 50 cents a week and an education. Later, she described her two years with that family as near slavery, saying she'd endured mental and physical abuse that left her with scars. When her mother wrote her and told her to come home, the family refused to let her leave and held her prisoner. In Annie's autobiography, she wouldn't reveal their names. She only referred to them as the wolves. Annie eventually ran away from the wolves and made it back to the poor farm, where the infirmary superintendent and his wife took her in, sent her to school, taught her to sew, and paid her to make quilts for the infirmary. Annie was about 15 when she finally returned to her mother. She honed her skills, trapping, shooting, and hunting, and began selling small game to families around Greenville. Shopkeepers Charles and Anthony Katzenberger even bought her rabbits, quail, and grouse to ship to hotels in Cincinnati. She used the profits to help her mom pay off the $200 mortgage that remained on the farm. 
Annie was a local celebrity by this time. Everybody knew her as the quirky girl with the steady trigger finger. She entered and won every local turkey shoot until they finally barred her from participating in them anymore. That's when Annie had the opportunity to develop a broader fan base. On Thanksgiving Day, 1881, Cincinnati was hosting the Bauman and Butler Shooting Act. Shooting demonstrations were a very popular entertainment at the time. The act included a marksman named Frank Butler, an Irish immigrant. On the side, Butler made a little wager with a Cincinnati hotel owner named Jack Frost that he could beat any local shooter. Frost said he'd take that bet for $100. That's more than a couple thousand dollars today. Then Jack Frost put Butler on the train to Greenville to go meet the challenger he'd selected. From Greenville, Butler made his way to the little town he'd been instructed to find. You can imagine his surprise when his challenger came out and he was introduced to Annie, 20 years old, standing 5 feet tall and barely weighing 110 pounds, wearing a Lindsay dress and knickerbockers. The pair took turns shooting at clay pigeons, launched at a furious pace. Butler hit the first 24, missing on the 25th. Annie was flawless and won the bet. Butler began courting Annie immediately after that. He had to leave to finish the touring season, but he wrote her letters and poetry. He was a kind man. He didn't smoke or drink, and the couple married the next year. Annie's age has been part of her mystique. Throughout her career, she and others would always indicate she was younger than she was, There were biographies and news stories that said she was 15 when she competed against Butler and married him at 16. Records show she was six years older than that. Biographers believe this age adjustment happened a few years after Annie became a star because another female sharpshooter, Lillian Smith, was making headlines, and Lillian was 11 years younger than Annie. But Annie needn't have worried about the competition. Nobody remembers Lillian Smith. About a year after Annie and Frank were married, the man who served as Frank's partner on the vaudeville circuit fell ill. Annie joined the show in his place. At first, Frank was still the marksman, shooting objects that Annie held for him. But one day when Frank was having trouble hitting his target, he had Annie pick up the rifle and give it a try. The crowd howled as she hit it and demanded more. Frank graciously gave up the limelight as Annie moved front and center. After that, she entertained audiences by shooting cigars from her husband's lips and hitting dimes thrown into the air. She could split a playing card held edge-on from 30 paces and shoot out the flame on a burning candle without touching the wax. During this time, Annie picked a new professional name for herself. Decades later, a grandniece would tell reporters she had picked Oakley because when she ran away as a teenager and tried to get home, she lacked the fare for the train. A man saw her desperation and bought her ticket. She asked his name, and he introduced himself as Mr. Oakley. 
Annie promised him she'd never forget him. Others say when Annie and Frank first married, they lived in Cincinnati for a time and resided in the Oakley neighborhood, and that's where she got the name. Truthfully, the mystery of her name has never been resolved to everyone's satisfaction. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Now, while Annie and Frank were still pretty much struggling vaudeville performers, they made a stop in St. Paul, Minnesota. There, the legendary Sioux warrior, Chief Sitting Bull, saw her perform. He thought her skills were supernatural. He sent a message to her hotel room, asking to see her, but she had a busy performance schedule and couldn't spare the time. So he sent $65, an astronomical sum in 1883, and asked her for a signed photograph. She sent the messenger back to Sitting Bull with his $65, a signed photo, and a promise to meet with him the following morning. The two of them became fast and lifelong friends. Sitting Bull asked Annie if he could adopt her as his daughter, which he did in his own symbolic way. He gave her the name Watanya Cecilia, which means little sure shot. In 1884, the circus company Annie and Frank had been touring with went out of business. And Buffalo Bill Cody paid a visit to the circus parking lot to see if there were any performers he wanted to pick up for his famous Wild West show. Annie and Frank were there and eagerly introduced themselves. But Buffalo Bill already had shooting acts and turned them down flat. Well, soon after that, Buffalo Bill's show was traveling by steamboat on the Mississippi when it collided with another boat. Animals and equipment were sunk, and the company's main shooting act lost their rifles and ammunition to the bottom of the river. That act, which featured a father and his four sons, decided to give up performing and go back home. Annie and Frank slipped into the opening and became a staple of the show for the next 17 years. They traveled throughout the U.S. and performed before the royal families and heads of state in Europe. One story that has persisted is that Annie shot the ashes off a cigarette that was held by the newly crowned German Kaiser Wilhelm II, at his request. Of course, one can only wonder if she had missed and hit him if World War I would have been prevented. Annie's star power was undeniable. She started making a higher income than anyone else in the show, with the exception of Buffalo Bill himself. During touring breaks, Anne and Frank traveled to Dark County to visit Annie's mom, the couple never had children, but Annie took these moments to get to know her many nieces and nephews. The local farmers loved Frank for that Irish humor and the gift of storytelling. 
Sometimes the pair would give impromptu performances for the home crowd. In 1894, Buffalo Bill got his buddy, Thomas Edison, another Ohioan, of course, to make Annie a subject of his brand new kinetoscope. Annie was filmed performing at Edison's Black Mariah Studio in a film that lasted 21 seconds. Edison was thrilled with how his camera had picked up the smoke from her gun and the way the clay targets shattered. It became the 11th commercial film ever made by his new revolutionary movie camera, entitled Little Sure Shot of the Wild West. Annie tried using her influence on yet another Ohioan, President William McKinley, as the U.S. edged closer to war with Spain. In 1898, she wrote him a letter offering to organize 50 lady sharpshooters who would provide their own arms and ammunition and join the army. The Spanish-American War did break out, but McKinley did not accept her offer. The U.S. just wasn't ready for women on the front lines. In 1901, Annie was injured in a train accident. Just how bad is not clear, because newspapers who wrote about that accident never mentioned it. Later, it would be reported and repeated that the accident had caused her long brown hair to go white within hours, and that she had to undergo five spinal operations. Modern biographers think neither of these statements are true. But it is true that Annie made an adjustment to her career about that time. She and Frank left the Wild West show and settled in Nutley, New Jersey. Annie began touring in a play that had been written about her life. It was called The Western Girl. She also began teaching other women how to use a gun. It's believed over the course of her life, she had instructed more than 15,000 women in marksmanship, promoting it as self-defense. She once said, I would like to see every woman know how to handle guns as naturally as they know how to handle babies. In 1904, Annie was in the news for a much different reason. In Chicago, a burlesque performer was arrested for stealing, then telling the judge she had done it to support a cocaine habit. The woman gave her name as Annie Oakley, and the newspapers around the country repeated it. Mostly, they were relying on a report by the new staff of the Chicago Examiner, owned by William Randolph Hearst. When the other newspapers learned of the mistake, they retracted it quickly with an apology. But Annie, conservative, demure, a straight shooter in more ways than one, felt completely humiliated. She filed libel suits against 25 newspapers that had printed the story. William Hearst doubled down. To defend himself in the suit, he sent an investigator to Dark County to try and collect dirt on Annie. The investigator found nothing, and the townspeople of Greenville wouldn't even allow the investigator to rent a hotel room for the night. Annie was obsessed with restoring her reputation. She spent the next six years of her life traveling from trial to trial to defend her lawsuits. Courtrooms filled with people who wanted to see her. In the end, she won them all. 
Hearst had to pay her $27,000, the equivalent of about a million dollars today. Annie and Frank moved around a bit after that. They built a brick bungalow in Cambridge, Maryland, then moved on to North Carolina. Annie stayed active, entering more shooting competitions and setting more records. At the age of 62, she hit 100 clay targets in a row from 16 yards. She also spent her time campaigning for women's rights and charitable causes. In 1925, with her health declining, Annie came full circle. She returned to Dark County, the place of her birth. As winter approached, Annie encouraged Frank, who wasn't doing well himself, to go south for the season. Friends from Detroit made arrangements to take him, and Frank went to Detroit to stay with them till they departed. Back in Greenville, Annie took a turn for the worse. Late in the evening of November the 3rd, 1926, she died at the age of 66. The cause of death was pernicious anemia. In Detroit, when Frank learned of her death, he grieved so hard he stopped eating. He died himself 18 days later. Both are buried at Brock Cemetery near Greenville. Annie was cremated. Frank was not. According to one rumor, Annie's ashes were placed in Frank's coffin and they were buried together on Thanksgiving Day, November 25, 1926. It was the anniversary of the day they'd met. Credit for much of the research in this episode goes to author Cheryl Casper and her book, Annie Oakley. Also to Stephanie Mallory, who wrote a piece for the internet entitled Debunking the Annie Oakley Myth in 2009. Mallory interviewed Bess Edwards, Annie's then 87-year-old grandniece, who had spent a lifetime collecting information about her great-aunt and preserving stories that had been told by Annie's siblings. Bess Edwards said that Broadway musical, Annie Get Your Gun, was not a source of pride for the family, but rather misery. They believed it didn't portray Annie fairly at all. She wasn't a big, brash country bumpkin. She was petite and modest and very smart. Bess Edwards recalled this story about her grandpa, who was Annie's brother, when he saw the production for the first time. She said, My cousins claimed that he cried all the way through it. In fact, the lies burdened and disappointed him so much that my grandmother believed it caused his death 21 days later. He was 87 years old, and we think it was more than his heart could stand. Annie's philanthropic work was always quietly done, and so it was often overlooked by people who wrote about her. She helped orphans, widows, and young women who wanted to further their education. She funded college and professional training for at least 20 young women. Bess said her great-aunt deserves more than the myth dreamed up by Buffalo Bill and that unfortunate musical. She said, I want the world to know that she was truly a remarkable woman. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. Now, about tonight's featured musical artist. 
Junkyard Todd is Todd Thurman, a guitarist and singer-songwriter from Cleveland. We featured him before as part of the band Stupid Beautiful Heaven. Tonight, we're playing his song, In the Sunshine. It comes off his album from 2020 entitled, Dude, I Am the Walrus, an album made entirely of songs that came out of automatic writing sessions, then recorded in Todd's spare room. You can find the rest of that album on Junkyard Todd's Bandcamp.com page, or follow Stupid Beautiful Heaven's Facebook page, where Todd and his buddies did a little live streaming last year. Well, how about another listen to In the Sunshine by Junkyard Todd? Turn up the volume, enjoy, and we'll see you back here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.
History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts.